Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today I want to talk about Buddhist ethics. There's a tendency for Westerners who discover Buddhism to limit themselves to meditation practice. There are probably a number of reasons for this. When we look at statues of the Buddha, he's generally meditating. So this must be what Buddhists do. Meditation produces gratification in short order as we experience novel and profound states of mind, many of which are blissful. We have the sense of entering a new world, a place where we've never been as explorers hungry for new experiences. But then we stop there. We know there is more to Buddhism, but it seems to be religious mumbo-jumbo and dogma for the most part, cultural accretions from foreign shores. At least this is a common attitude. We are purists. We want the real thing, and we think we don't have to look further. Many of us equate Buddhism with meditation, and our response to any Buddhist discussion that is not about meditation is, just meditate, man. We think of meditation as a panacea, a cure-all for all of life's woes, if we only pursue it deeply enough. I remember 20 years ago, an American Zen priest giving a talk on precepts which are a set of ethical rules that converts to Buddhism recite, don't kill, don't steal, and so on, and explaining that these are things the Zen practitioner doesn't really have to worry about, that they are a description of the awakened mind produced through long meditation practice, that Zen is just meditation. When we go back to the earliest texts or examine the teaching of almost any school of Buddhism, which generally will retain these teachings, we find that this cannot be. Consistently, we learn that Buddhist practice has three interwoven strands. One is called mental development or sometimes composure, which includes meditation but another is ethics, and a third is wisdom. The Noble Eightfold Path divides into these three strands with two factors allocated to wisdom, three to ethics, and three to composure. Wisdom sounds like a good idea, so we buy a t-shirt that depicts a meditating Buddha above a quote almost invariably misattributed to the Buddha, like, Walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light, the Buddha. Or, if you know both your enemy and yourself, you can win every battle without jeopardy, the Buddha. That's the extent of our wisdom practice. I just picked these off of fakebuddhistquotes.com. But ethics is something we do not so easily embrace. However, if we restrict ourselves to meditation, it seems we are undertaking at best one-third of Buddhist practice. Why do we modern people do that, at least commonly? 
Part of the reason may be that ethics seems religious, and we tend to be very suspicious of anything that seems religious in the West. Of course, there are many people who belong to one religion or another, but Westerners who come to Buddhism generally self-select. Many are refugees from family religions that they come to reject and come to Buddhism because they hear that Buddhists don't have a god or that Buddhism is not really a religion or that Buddhism is more like psychotherapy or self-help. Although we are individualists in the West, we fancy ourselves to be autonomous agents. We don't accept authority well, and ethics is about someone, maybe a higher being, telling us what to do and what to think. I know better what to do and think. We are taught that all that is of value is found within ourselves, our own creativity, our own spirituality, our own wisdom, our own ideals, and even our own ethical sensibilities of kindness and compassion, and that society with its rules and restrictions just screws things up. I think another reason may also be that we have very poor examples of ethics in Western society. I recently read a book called After Virtue by Scottish philosopher Alastair MacIntyre. He offers a scathing critique of the state of Western ethics, which he characterizes as much like this. Do what you want, but have some good arguments at hand for the righteousness of what you've done. He's puzzled that while we have abandoned or corrupted ethics, nonetheless, we still feel the need to make a logical, ethical argument, as if we had some rational basis for righteousness. Good examples come from politics as people debate abortion, for instance, or taxation or foreign policy, and justify their claims in terms of individual rights, loyalty, expediency, friendship, not being a wimp, family values, standing one's ground, and so on. Each of us ends up convinced that we uniquely can see what's afoot in clear, rational terms, and that we are surrounded by irrational bozos. Then there's the idea that ethics is about imposing values on conduct. That is not rational because it is not fact-driven. We cannot derive values from facts. Moreover, ethical questions are a kind of zero-sum game. If something I do benefits me and others, great. But ethics comes into play when my choice is between benefiting me and benefiting others at my expense. So-called rational people choose themselves. There is just the material world as it is. That is reality. So we base our goals in life on money, whose value can be defined materially in terms of hypothetical free markets. McIntyre points out that this situation in the West resulted historically with the European Enlightenment, which gave us modern science, but also got rid of values and other intangibles, like meaning in life, as not rational. In contrast, he points out that the dominant stream of European ethics before 
the European Enlightenment, was far superior than what followed and far more rational than people think. It was a model that originated not in Christianity, but in Greek thought, adapted to Christianity primarily through the influence of Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. In Greece, it had been articulated by Aristotle. Why this is important for this podcast is that this model is almost identical to the ethics taught by the Buddha. Let's start with the rational assumption that good and bad are values that humans impose on reality. For rational people, this applies to ethical behavior or to claims about virtuous or evil people. However, it does not seem to apply to material things like a good car or a good book or a bad clock or a bad hair day. In these cases, good and bad are clearly meaningful because they are imposed on things that have an understood function. A good clock is one that makes it easy for you to know what time it is. A bad clock fails to fulfill that function. For instance, telling you the incorrect time or having hands or numbers that are difficult to read. Good or bad is defined in terms of the fulfillment of a thing's natural or humanly defined function. But people often have similar functions. One can be a good barber, a poor teacher, a good plumber, a good athlete, a bad father, a mediocre doctor. We assume many different roles in our lives, and within the context of one of these roles, we have a function. But these are generally functions that we take up and put aside in the course of our lives. For Aristotle, human flourishing and well-being requires that our life have some ongoing basic function, that we have a purpose that characterizes our whole life, what the Greeks call a telos. We don't all require the same telos, and our telos may change as we go along. Our telos as a goal does not have to be completely realized in our life. Its meaning is in the effort we expend and the progress we make toward our telos. Telos, or purpose in life, is probably the main thing that the European Enlightenment threw out with regard to ethics as irrational, simply another intangible, imposed willy-nilly on life. However, telos mysteriously but observably brings us a sense of well-being or flourishing, of satisfaction in a life well-lived that is different and quite separate from everyday pleasure. The Greeks call this experience eudaimonia, along with telos, Modern people have, for the most part, forgotten eudaimonia. It's in this context that the development of virtue as a quality of character is taken up as telos. Aristotle's ethics is based on having a telos, that is, your personal function in life. Virtue is our fulfillment of that function. We train to fulfill that function by developing and cultivating first intellectually through repeated practice to internalize that virtue as a quality of character. 
eudaimonia and a life well-lived come not from achieving some end goal, but through a process on the way, through the life that is constructed with that end goal in mind. Training to be a virtuoso is like this. And when one's capabilities falter in old age, training others to be a virtuoso. Along the way, we do things we would not otherwise be inclined to do, like endless repetition of musical scales. From a modern Western perspective, Aristotle is making a radical proposal. We tend to make the rational assumption that there is no purpose in life. We live and then we die. We are lucky if we can get by comfortably. And people suffer for it. Meaninglessness is endemic in modern culture. People define their well-being in material terms or in present sensual pleasure, or they define their purpose in antisocial goals of personal prestige or wealth acquisition. Of course, there are notable exceptions. Scholars, scientists, artists, and many others find deep meaning in dedicating themselves wholeheartedly to centuries-old social projects that have the purpose of advancing our cultural assets. So what does this mean for Buddhist ethics? Buddhist ethics is Aristotelian in nature, or rather Aristotelian ethics is Buddhist in character since the Buddha lived a couple hundred years before Aristotle. The parallel is quite striking. The Buddha gave us a telos, and he described in detail the nature of eudaimonia, the sense of fulfillment or life well lived. The telos is awakening, which is an extremely challenging attainment. A life constructed around its attainment is a source of spiritual pleasure as opposed to mundane pleasure. This is eudaimonia. Character is developed and cultivated around that life goal through arduous training in three aspects, wisdom, ethics, and mental composure. Buddhism is a practice tradition in that we train with this goal in mind. The words corresponding to good and bad in Pali, kusala and akusala, actually literally translated as skillful and unskillful, according to whether or not something helps satisfy the function of one's life. Even ethical precepts, the things we ought to do, maybe the counterpart of musical scales, are called in Pali sekapadang, training steps. Our attainments on the path are stages in achieving virtuosity in wisdom, ethics, and composure. So, a typical modern life is one that gets by enjoying worldly pleasure, working enough to pay for pleasure, and possibly finding a way to make abundant money to enjoy abundant pleasures and potentially boosting one's reputation to celebrity status. Why not? This seems solidly based on evolutionarily adapted inclinations. Why would one rationally choose to live a Buddhist or an Aristotelian life of virtue? 
One reason is that it leads to more well-being than seeking sensual pleasures, which people can easily observe in others or in oneself at different stages of life. Another is that it is also based on natural inclinations, almost imperatives, but they contradict other natural inclinations, which is why we are so confused about these issues. Evolutionary theory only recently began getting to the point of explaining this. You can't get any more rational than Darwin. I've talked about this in past talks. Humans have a complex evolutionary history. Before about 400,000 years ago, we were apes, something much closer to chimpanzees. What are normal motives in modern culture are still ape-like. Look out for yourself, fulfill material needs through the guiding influence of sensual pleasure and avoidance of pain. Try to climb the social hierarchy. Chimps are individualists, like most people in modern culture, especially American culture, by the way. However, some 400,000 years ago, we underwent a period of rapid evolution, during which our brains tripled in size and we became thoroughly social, cooperative creatures capable of knowing others' understandings and intentions with regard to the world through language and gesture, modeling others' minds. We also evolved mechanisms for cooperation and for staying on the same page, which are symbolic in nature, involving language, formulaic roles, ritual, and shared stories. These allow individual behavior to defer to group dynamics and allow us to have reliable expectations about the behaviors of those we are in relationship with. All of this is remarkably pro-social. The upshot is that we are half ape and half human, or going by relative brain size, one-third ape and two-thirds human. Our humanity was added on top of the ape that was already there and is still there. The ape and the human in us have disagreements, and at any one time, one or the other might dominate. For instance, in one context, individuals will be in fierce competition with one another. In another, particularly in moments of urgency, individuals fall into a cooperative whole with little or no self-regard. Jonathan Haidt imagines a hive switch at the flick of a switch, humans suddenly fall in line and behave like bees, each assuming a role on behalf of a communal goal. Modern culture favors the ape. Our social structures and our economy are designed with individualists, that is, with apes in mind. As a result, most of our institutions are either coercive or bureaucratic. Only some are cooperative. 
What the Buddha and then Aristotle discovered is how individuals perfect their humanity through training to overcome the apes in us and to develop and cultivate and perfect pro-social values so that humans might cooperate and harmonize, blending like milk and water, as the Buddha puts it. I've talked about this in terms of steps in our evolutionary history. It is only recently that such a model became actually viable among evolutionary theorists with the discovery of multi-level group adaptation. In any case, evolutionary adaptive behavior manifests through emotions, seemingly in all species, without us necessarily understanding the reason for our behavior. For instance, procreation is largely driven by sensual arousal, often without thought of producing offspring. We all, except maybe the awakened, have ape emotions and urges. But as humans, we have developed an entirely different system of emotions and drives, this, I maintain, is where eudaimonia, or non-mundane, non-sensual bliss, and the sense of the life well-lived come from. The Buddha said that this higher pleasure far surpasses mundane sensual pleasures, that once recognized, it is foolish to settle for mundane pleasures. I would guess that this would be evolution's attempt to prioritize the human in us over the ape. Ethics is in our genes, and this is the basis of Buddhist ethics. Thank you.